Good morning, everybody. Starting a little bit early this morning because I've never been accused of being short uh, when I'm talking about something. Uh, so if I don't get an early start, who knows what will happen next. Uh, don't want to forget to mention Nathan and one of the best sausage biscuits I've had in a long time. <laughs> so appreciate the meal. I think we're all very thankful. Um, if we can, we'll just have a, a brief moment of prayer and we'll launch right into our topic of the day. Father, we thank you for the opportunity together as men to uh, talk about your word today, Father. We just ask that you will uh, work through a very uh, human and flawed speaker uh, to be able to speak intelligibly about your perfect and divine word. Uh, we ask that you'll bless this time and any conversation that results. In Jesus' name, amen. So my topic, and it, it might be sharper, it might be loud, um, I'm going to pop a slide up on the screen just to prove that I have them. I have them. But I'm, in fact, going to be reading um, frequently from my, my slides. And you don't want to sit here and, and read along with me. You want to pretend that I'm speaking extemporaneously. Um, I want to go over, can the Bible be trusted? Um, and this comes out of some uh, recent uh, discussions I've had with a friend. Um, it also comes out of a topic that uh, we're going to cover uh, in our classes in a couple of weeks. And uh, the Bible is the foundation of Christianity. Uh, Christians are sometimes called people of the book. Um, unlike other religions, they might be based on oral traditions. They might be based on charismatic leaders. Uh, these things change based on the, the whims of people. Christianity is anchored to a single book, the Bible. Uh, the Bible is an unchanging and universal point of reference for all Christians. Interpretations may vary, but the text does not. Times and leaders change, but the scripture does not. Christianity rests on a firm foundation in the scripture. Or does it? So there's been an assault on the reliability of the scripture. Uh, modern atheism, agnosticism, and secularism recognize the importance of the Christian Bible to the Christian faith. If confidence in Scripture can be undermined, then Christians can be quieted down and marginalized. We can be demotivated and demoralized to the degree that we censor ourselves because we think that our beliefs will be ridiculed. The leaders of this assault are university professors and social media influencers. Their primary targets are young Christians ages 15 to 25. Many Christian parents feel secure in their own faith and are not threatened by these assaults but they need to consider the same may not be true for their kids. We need to take the time to inform our children about the facts and orthodox Christian doctrine so that they won't be fooled by the misrepresentations and faulty logic that they are certain to hear. So the major um, arguments, I'll pop those up, are, well, there are so many different versions of the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible is full of contradictions. The Bible tells you not to eat shrimp. This is, this is a favorite, because this is a thing, apparently. Uh, the Bible was manipulated by Constantine. The Bible is a copy of a copy of a copy. The Bible's been edited. Uh, the Bible wasn't written until the Babylonian captivity. And there are major insertions, the woman caught in adultery and the longer ending of Mark. And so you can see we've got our work cut out for us this morning. I will try to keep a brisk uh, pace. <clears throat> so the, the first argument... 
there are so many different versions of the Bible. Now, this one is usually made by a relatively ignorant individual, and usually they're talking about the translations of the Bible, right? These are not versions. These are translations, uh, the King James, the ESV, the NIV. Um, the Bible has been translated into 724 languages as of last year, and languages change over time. And so there's just a need to keep up with that. Uh, there's no problem with having numerous translations. This is a good thing. If this is the Word of God, it should go into every language to every people. And if our language changes, it updates so that we can still understand. Um, this is an argument from ignorance. The Bible is full of contradictions. This one is often an argument from ignorance. Most people that say that can't really give you one. They'll just say it's full of them. Um, more knowledgeable scholars can pull out a list of things that they're going to claim are contradictions, but we have to talk about the difference between contradiction and paradox. Okay? A contradiction is something that cannot be reconciled. These two things do not go together. A paradox is something that isn't immediately obvious how it is reconciled, but it can go together. So uh, a simple example is if I make the statement that I am a father and a son, well, which am I, father or son? Huh? This is easy. Obviously, I'm a father to my son and a son to my father. This reconciles. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. But I could say I'm my father's father. Okay, that's a contradiction. I can't reconcile that. I can't find a way in which I am my father's father. So when we're looking at the Bible, it is full of paradoxes, but not contradictions. Uh, for example, here's a very common one, especially if you deal with uh, Jewish or, or Muslim persons in debate. Um, we will say there is one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And immediately the question is raised, isn't that a contradiction? You said there are one, and then you listed the three. And we know that this is not a contradiction. This is a paradox, right? That God is one in essence, but three in person. If I said he was one in essence and three in essence, that's a contradiction. If I said he is one in person and three in person, that's a contradiction. But one in essence, three in person, is a paradox. It reconciles if you understand how it reconciles. So when we're talking about Scripture, no one has been able to actually show a contradiction in the Bible. Uh, they can find plenty of paradoxes, but we have that in conversation. If you talk to somebody long enough, they're going to give you a paradox. They're going to say two things. You're like, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. And what you do with a speaker, if you want to know the answer, is you say, well, hold on, but didn't you just say... And they can clarify and they can reconcile this paradox, and now you understand how these two statements work together. We need to do the same with Scripture. When we see passages that are not immediately obvious how they reconcile, go to the speaker. This is, this is a matter for prayer. This is a matter for study. This is a matter for patience. Um, it can also be helpful to go to folks that have been down this road before that might give you some tips and get you there faster. But the Bible is full of paradoxes, not contradictions. Um, the Bible tells you not to eat shrimp. This is, this is so much fun. This has shown up uh, mostly on social media. That, that's kind of a go-to, although uh, former President Obama used it in a speech. So apparently it's not just uh, media influencers that like this argument. Um, and the argument goes, well, if, if the Bible is so worried about trivial things like whether or not you eat shrimp, I mean, is this where you want to get your moral standards from, someone who's worried about your, your shrimp consumption? Um, and, of course, they do that because if you said, oh, well, it's silly to say not to eat pork. Well, okay, you just offended every Jew in the room and every Muslim in the room and very, uh, every vegetarian in the room. Vegetarians don't eat pork, right? Uh, 
And if you get under the hood, shrimp is the same problem. Jewish people that are kosher are not going to be eating shrimp. That, that's just the nature of it. But it's not immediately obvious to everybody. If you said, it's silly to say don't eat pork, that's obviously an incendiary comment against many, many people. But shrimp, eh, you know shrimp. So it's just it's made out to sound silly. We understand that that's part of kosher law. And we have to look at what the law is. So there's kind of three general headings of the law. Um, there is the, the moral law, and that applies to all persons everywhere. There's the civil law that was given that applied to the nation of Israel. And there's the ceremonial law. And the dietary laws are part of the ceremonial law. Um, it's meant to keep the uh, people of Israel unique and distinct. And also, uh, many of these laws will foreshadow uh, Christ. And they're fulfilled in Christ. Um, the dietary laws of the Jews are amazing because they're still being kept thousands of years later. And you've got a culture that was dispersed just throughout the world that should have been completely integrated into the societies around them that for 2,000 years have held distinct social groups and, and that has not been broken down. I would argue that their dietary laws are part of this picture that they have things that make them unique and distinct and cause uh, separations between them and outside societies that kind of keep them uh, still Jewish and not a, a historic uh, population we can read about, but you can't meet one. No, they're still very distinctly Jewish, and I think the dietary laws have done a very good job of that. There's nothing silly about their dietary rules. Now, they don't apply to Christians today. Right? That's been abrogated. Christ has come. The ceremonial laws are no longer a thing that we, we follow. We don't offer sacrifices, right? Um, but there's nothing silly about the Bible giving those ceremonial laws at that time to those people. Um, the, the not eating shrimp thing is really not pertinent when we talk about the Bible's moral law. The Bible was manipulated by Constantine. I like this because when someone says this, you know that they like to read Dan Brown novels. So <clears throat> Dan Brown is a fiction author who wrote the fiction novel The Da Vinci Code, and he posits that Constantine has edited the scripture, that uh, when he called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that they laid out uh, what the books of the Bible were going to be and what Christian doctrine was going to be. They, they standardized it, and that Christianity today was set by Constantine, uh, when he set the canon in 325 A.D. Um, <clears throat> what's nice about this, of course, is it's a work of fiction. And there are historical records that tell us what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, specifically, they were called to address the Arian heresy. So the question is, when it says the son was begotten, does that mean that he began to become the son 2,000 years ago, and prior to that time there was no son of God? Or is begotten just an a eternal state? He is eternally begotten. It doesn't talk about a change happening. It talks about his positioning within the Godhead. Well, that was a matter of debate. And that's what the Council of Nicaea got together to debate. They were not there to set the canon. They did not address the canon of Scripture. They debated the Arian heresy and some other minor matters. By the way, they ruled 316 to 2 that no, Christ is eternally begotten. He did not begin to be begotten in, in the coming of Christ. Um, 
So it, it's interesting. It was not a strong heresy when you, when you lose on a 316 to 2 margin, but it was worth debating, apparently. Uh, but there's no debate that happens at the council. We have their records. We know what they talked about. They didn't set any what is and isn't scripture guidelines. So the, the whole manipulated by Constantine is reading too many fiction novels. Um, and the canon was, in fact, very strongly established very early um, in AD 90. Uh, there was pretty much a, a consensus on what the, the canon was. The Muratorian canon in AD 170 had everything but Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and Third John. Um, the Council of Carthage, 397 AD, the Council of Hippo, 393 AD, both had the exact 27-book New Testament that we have. Uh, pretty much Christians knew what the canon was from the very beginning. There were a few fringe books that were in this middle ground of we think so, but we're not sure. Or you know, we don't think so, but yeah, maybe. There were just a few books that were in the gray zone. Most of the books that we know that are either in the New Testament or just wild, all, you know, strange gospels were always confirmed or strange. There, there was very little debate happening. The Bible is a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, this is actually the argument that got me started on this whole thing, talking with a, a friend of mine. And uh, this is the telephone argument. So it says, well, if the Bible has been copied and copied and copied, we don't have the original in hand. Isn't this like a game of telephone? So in telephone, I'm sure everyone knows, you, you, you might form a line, and the first person whispers to the second person, and the second person whispers to the third person. And by the time you get to the end of the line, that last person announces what the message is, and it's, it's changed often hilariously from what the first person said. And, and that's the argument being made here is, oh, my goodness, if we don't have the originals, we just have copies of copies of copies. How do we know what the original would have said? Well, <clears throat> me... I'm not. I am not because what you're going to find is uh, most of what I'm saying out loud. <laughs> and I have, I have a pet peeve um, when I, I go to a, a lecture and someone puts on the, the screen and basically reads the screen to me. So if I'm reading the screen to you, and I'm, I'm totally going off note as I'm talking now, as I'm kind of getting fluid, but if I end up reading the screen to you, you're like... I, I can read it myself. So I, I just blanked that out, except there's a couple of slides I do want to show you. Um, so that's, that's the argument. This is, this is a game of telephone, and so how can we trust it? Well, there's a big difference between what we're talking about and a game of telephone, uh, because we're trying to clearly transmit this information. In a game of telephone, it's meant to be a game. We set rules like you have to whisper why do you have to whisper? Because it makes it more likely you're going to miss here, right? The, the game is a game. Um, but let's say we wanted to get an accurate password from one side of the line to the other, and no, seriously, there are stakes. This has to be accurate. Okay, the first person can speak clearly to the second person. The second person can repeat what they've heard, and the first person can confirm or correct it. And now the second person knows they have the password. They can repeat, repeat, repeat. Odds are that last person will have the accurate password because we're actually trying to preserve data rather than playing a game. And that's the little shuffle that they do when they say, oh, it's a copy of a copy. No, we're trying to preserve data. What's even better, you write it down, right? And this is the thing, we're not talking about verbal communication, we're talking about written communication that can be compared back in writing. So again, the, the uh, copy error is far overstated if you think of a game of telephone. 
So one of the things that um, I researched was the uh, Jewish tradition, which is far superior to the Christian tradition. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. The Jewish scribes were amazingly accurate in their preservation of the text. Uh, becoming a scribe required years of formal training, and great oversight was given to ensure the text was being accurately transmitted. Um, new copies of the Torah were compared back to prior copies of the Torah, and any defect, even one letter, was sufficient that the text had to be destroyed and could not be used. They were serious about the accuracy of transmission. So with the Jews being scattered to the wind after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the central scribal authority under the Sanhedrin was dissolved, and groups of scribes began copying scripture on their own. So when compared back today, 2,000 years later, there are only two variant textual traditions, the Yemenite Torah and everybody else. And the difference between the two traditions of 304,805 letters in the Torah, there are nine letters different. And they're all spelling. Uh, the equivalent of the American color, C-O-L-O-R, and the British color, C-O-L-O-U-R. That's the difference. That's a very good transmission because they took it very seriously. Again, the telephone game is just a game. It doesn't mean that's how these things work. And then there's us. Uh, <clears throat> the New Testament transmission is not nearly as clean. The New Testament texts were often copied by amateurs in their free time rather than well-trained professionals. And they were copied in secret and on the run in some instances. There was also an emphasis on producing as many copies as possible um, to get the scriptures into wide distribution in a rapidly growing church. I mean, you couldn't double production time with careful proofing and destroying texts for minor errors. This led to numerous differences in New Testament texts. Uh, the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible says, a study of 150 Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke has revealed more than 30,000 different readings. It is safe to say there is not one sentence in the New Testament in which the manuscript is wholly uniform. Some scholars indicate there may be as many as 200,000 differences in the New Testament. While critics such as Dr. Bart Ehrman, which is where this journey began, uh, indicate there may be as many as 400,000 differences. Dr. Ehrman has said, one thing we can say for certain is there are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. And this is where folks really begin to take a hit. If they've never heard this before and they hear this for the first time, and maybe they think, well, this guy is just a quack, and so they start looking at other scholars, and this is very true. Even very conservative scholars will say, you know, this is, this is correct, yes. That is the state of the text. Um, that's a challenge for people to comprehend, but it's very misleading. Um, the purpose that Bart Ehrman has stated is that he wants to destroy faith in the Bible. When he begins his classes, one of the first things he'll do is hold up a Bible and say, by the end of my class, if I'm successful, you will not trust this book. So in a 2011 debate with Daniel Wallace, which if you want to see him debate is the best debate that I could find, uh, Bart Ehrman admitted, well, most of these 300 to 400,000 differences are completely immaterial, insignificant, and don't matter for a thing other than to show that scribes in the ancient world can spell no better than my students can today. Okay, because the reality is that these are mostly spelling issues, right? 
Um, the most common error is the movable new. So if I say a apple, when I should have said an apple, there's that N that you're supposed to put behind that A. Uh, in Greek, that's the movable new is the, the equivalent of that. Most common of these hundreds of thousands of errors is I said A, I should have said an, oops. These are not significant differences. We would not think of these as significant differences. Uh, in fact, nearly all the differences boil down to spelling, punctuation, word order. Virtually none of these are alternate versions of events. Uh, the few that are generally limit themselves to a handful of fringe texts known to be an error, universally disregarded by scholarship. Um, in most cases, scholars can easily reconstruct the correct text of the New Testament by comparing the various texts that we have. Um, so here's a simple thought experiment. Let's say that I recruited 10 people off the street and brought them into a room. And in the front of the room, I wrote a long passage on a whiteboard. And I asked my 10 copyist volunteers to copy the passage down. And let's say that a few of these are trying to be just perfectly accurate. They take this very seriously. Most of them are like, oh, whatever, I got something to do. And they just scribble. And a couple of them are anarchists. I mean, they're having fun with this thing. They're going to insert all kinds of, of ridiculous uh, things. They're going to pull out portions I've written. It's going to be a disaster. Now, we got these 10 copies. And if you compare the copies side by side, they do not match. I can then grab, just off the street, an extra participant. And this person is my scholar participant. And give them those 10 texts. I've, I've erased my, my whiteboard. Here's the 10 texts. You can't see the original, but reconstruct it for me. What did the original say? Odds are very good they could reconstruct the original that I wrote on the board with these 10 examples. They can see the differences, they can see the similarities, and they can rebuild that very easily. It's not hard. Um, now let's say, instead of 10 texts, what if I had 100 volunteers come in and make copies, and I had 100 copies? Would I be more or less likely to be able to accurately reconstruct the original if I had 100 copies? More. Much more confidence. Would I have more or fewer errors if I had 100 copies? More errors. Okay. This is why that count is so high. When you hear that amazing high number, it's because we have so many copies. But if I'm a scholar, would I prefer 10 copies or 100? I prefer 100 because I'm more certain to get the correct text, even though I will have more errors. And here is where I'm going to put something on the screen. So when you look at ancient texts and consider the manuscript evidence, um, for example, Pliny the Younger's historical works, we've got seven manuscripts of this. We've got seven the oldest one is uh, 750 years after it was written. All right? Suetonius, eight manuscripts, 800 years after the first copy was written. So there's 800 years of copying, and then we found a copy. And then we have even old, uh, more recent ones. We have a total of eight copies to look at. This is what ancient uh, literature looks like. The Gaelic Wars... 10 manuscripts, and we have to wait a 1,000 years to get the oldest one. When you get into your bestsellers, like Aristotle, Sophocles, Homer is the historic bestseller with the Iliad. We've got 643 manuscripts of that thing, and our oldest one is only 500 years after it was written. The New Testament, we have 5,600 manuscripts. 
We got fragments 100 years out, complete New Testaments 200 and 300 years out. This is a difference. When you have this many manuscripts, you have a lot of copy errors. You have a lot of variances, and you get these huge numbers that Bart Ehrman is talking about, most of which are spelling differences or the movable new. But with this many manuscripts this early, we are extremely confident that we know what the original said. And that's what he doesn't want to talk about. So when you hear these kind of, well, they're copies of copies, if we can't trust the New Testament, then we have no history. Make up a fictional history of your own, and it's as good as anything else they can present if they're not going to count this. So no, the New Testament is well attributed, and we talked about how well the Old Testament was. All right. The Bible wasn't written until the Babylonian captivity. Now, this is fun if you get into a lot of Old Testament stuff. Uh, there's a, a secondary line, and they say, well, here's what happened. The Jewish people were never a unified nation. The, the, David is fictional. Solomon is fictional. Um, all the patriarchs are fictional. Um, they were just local uh, related tribes. They eventually formed into two nation states, Judah and Israel. And when Judah fell to Babylon, there was a crisis and in the crisis, they begin to pull to all Hebrew brothers, and they then concoct this history that really our two nations used to be one nation. And they, they add the Genesis accounts and the patriarchs and all that back. And the focus point of the story is David. David is the linchpin to everything. It's all a lead up to David as kind of a messianic figure and a follow-up of David. And if you read the Old Testament, and here's the Psalms of David and all the prophets, there's the, the Samuel talking about David. David is the linchpin piece because he represents Israel's freedom from Babylon. Oh, when will the second David come? When will the second David come? And we're going to be restored. So that's, that's that line of thinking. Uh, and that line of thinking comes from a few places, but it's, it's conspiracy theory mentality. It's one of those things, everybody can come up with an interesting theory. There doesn't actually have to be a lot of substantiation or support. Um, there's no reason to doubt the biblical narrative. When we're given a narrative and we just uh, throw that one aside and come up with a brand new narrative in its place, this is conspiracy theory thinking. Uh, in every point in which the Bible's historical accuracy can be checked against the archaeological record, um, it's either been shown to be correct or it's inconclusive, it's never been shown to be incorrect. At times, archaeologists have believed certain details of Scripture to be incorrect, only to later be proven wrong when new discoveries are made. My favorite is the Hittites. Uh, for a long time, archaeologists said, well, this is a fictional um, uh, empire, this is a fictional nation, it didn't exist. And in fact, this was one of the early proofs for this Babylonian-era authors, because in the Babylonian era, they didn't know the Hittites weren't real. It was a folk tale. This was a, a, a fiction. But they all believed it, and they put it in their histories because they didn't know any better, unlike us archaeologists today that know that the Hittites were fictional. And then they discovered the Hittites, and they discovered libraries of Hittite writings, so they uh, overnight can read the history of the Hittites, right? Um, and the Bible was not mistaken. The scholars were mistaken. But that was one of the early supports to this Babylonian era thing is, look, they believe in a mythological people group. Oh, no, the people group are real, right? So, again, it's conspiracy theory thinking. The Bible has always been trustworthy. 
Um, the main points that drive it are that critics rule out miracles from step one. So any text that has anything miraculous must be mythological. That, that is the beginning point of the logic. And that also means prophecy must be mythological. So if there's an accurate prophecy, then that's just a sign of a later writing. Uh, the, the, the better arguments they might make <clears throat> are that the texts definitely show Babylonian influences. They're interacting with Babylonian culture in the text, which makes sense because the Babylonians were around before the captivity era. Um, and also, there's changes in the Hebrew itself. Languages change over time. Right? If, if you found a document from 400 years ago, it might be in English and you could read it, but you would know it's not contemporary. The Hebrew that we see is a blend of pre-captivity and post-captivity Hebrew, and the two are interwoven with each other in a lot of these documents. That's where you get, well, is it the first Isaiah or is it the second Isaiah? Is it which Isaiah are we talking about? Because they posit, well, there must have been multiple because there's differences in the Hebrew and then we, we go back to, and he couldn't have had accurate prophecies and all this. Um, there is likely some editing that takes place during the captivity era, and there's nothing strange about that. Uh, I think that's probably where you're going to get mixtures of a early Hebrew and a later Hebrew. Um, you're also going to get more interaction with the Babylonian culture through that uh, later editing, probably around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That doesn't mean they came up with the history wholesale during captivity. That means that the people coming out of captivity, kind of rebuilding, are making some, some editorial touches to the work. And when I say that, now I'm getting ready to run out this door in case I get chased, because I just said that there's uh, edits happening in Scripture. Well, the problem is um, it's pretty obvious that edits are happening in the Scripture, um, the next point is the Bible has been edited because a critic will point out that the Bible has been edited and they're correct. Um, they will note that there are obvious editorial additions to Scripture. Um, this is problematic if your view of inspiration is that once the pen has left the page, then nothing can be touched. It's inspired. Leave it alone. And, and that's just simply not the way that Scripture uh, gets written. Um, an example of this would be uh, Deuteronomy uh, 34.12, which records the death of Moses, and it does so past tense. Now, if we propose that Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, which is a debated topic, then we have to say that Moses writes about his death in the past tense. That's well, possible. But it's also possible that other persons around Moses recorded his death in the Scripture after he died. That's, that's just what happens. Uh, we have the account of Genesis 14.14, 14, where uh, Abraham pursues Lot cap Lot's captors as far as the city of Dan, which wasn't named Dan until years later, not in the time of Abraham, but in the time of the conquest of Canaan under um, Joshua. So it was actually Laish. <clears throat> so we should have said that it was Laish. Whether we're talking about the time of Abraham or the time of Moses' writing, it was Laish. But we read that it was Dan probably because a later editor updated for modern readers the way we update our Bibles, language for modern readers, to say, oh, that was Dan, rather than saying it was Laish. The phrase, unto this day, is frequent. Uh, often when you see, unto this day, in the Old Testament, you're seeing an editorial. They're telling the modern reader that this thing that was true then is still true now. Go check it out. 
So we're seeing an editorial change. Um, there's also person shifting, where suddenly the text will go from first person to third person, and then back to first person, which is generally suggested that the editor is being seen when they do that because they're speaking third person about the person rather than being in first person. So we just have to kind of live with that's what's happening in text. Besides which, I mean, prophets rarely were told to write things down. Um, often it's the, the school of the prophets or the, the sons of the prophets that are following them around that are writing things down. And so they're, they're picking up all this material throughout this oral tradition of the prophet's lifetime. And at the end, they're compiling. They're putting it together. They're making editorial decisions. Uh, so there's just there's nothing to be worried about there. Um, this is uh, part of how Scripture is written. Uh, what's important is that these edits are not changing what the Bible says, and they're not correcting biblical errors. The, the, those things don't exist. These edits aren't changing them. They're generally adding some helps to us as a more modern audience, or at least the modern audience of that day, to understand. So if we touch back to Babylonian captivity, you've got a, a nation removed from its roots through the captivity, and editorial touches are making sure that the modern reader of that day can understand what the original text is saying. That there's no change to the text, but there is edits. Uh, real quick, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, there are two major insertions in the Bible. This is the kind of last argument that you're going to get, and these are very good, accurate arguments. They just don't mean what the person thinks that they mean. Uh, the major insertions that are pointed to are the story of the woman caught in adultery and the longer ending of Mark. Now, the woman caught in adultery, uh, so <clears throat> the Jewish people bring this woman to Jesus. They say, hey, she's been caught in the very act. What should we do? And they're prompting maybe for a stoning. And Jesus does the, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. He's riding on the ground. The accusers leave. This is a great story that probably doesn't come from the book of John, even though that's where you'll find it in the modern Bible. Um, when you look at the textual evidence, um, it, it isn't in all the copies of John, and when it's in John, it's not in the same place in John. It'll be found over here. It'll be found over there. It, it travels through John. It also shows up in Luke sometimes. Word for word, it's in Luke, not in John. It, it migrates. Um, the language of the story is not like the language of the book of John. The scholars that study that clip out of it says, oh, that doesn't match anything around here, anything in the book of John. And so the argument becomes, aha, we have an insertion of non-scripture into your Bible, and you believed it. Right? Pastors preached on it, and you believed it, and that's not even part of the Bible. Uh, this is a, a, a very uh, bad take on it. So the language is an extremely good match for Luke, extremely high match for Luke. Um, what likely is happening is we hear that Luke is compiling all the stories from as many people as he could, and he then writes a gospel, and he then writes the book of Acts. And we have the editorial hand. He's telling a story. He's not just, here's a bunch of things I found and cramming them together. He's telling a narrative and a story. And this breaks his narrative. If you figure out where it fits in, in the flow, it breaks his narrative. He's pushed it to the side. But it's really good. So in the early church, it travels with the later Gospels, Luke and John. The early church fathers reference it. There's no point as far back as you can go that this is not considered scripture. It's always considered scripture. But it travels with Luke and John. And if you're carrying around scrolls or codexes, 
You don't want to carry three if you can carry two. John is a shorter book. What seems to be happening is that they're taking this outtake from the book of Luke that they really like and believe to be scripture, and they're cramming it into copies of John that they're carrying. So I got my Luke scroll and my John scroll, and in the extra John scroll, I got this outtake from Luke. And people are preaching from it as early as we can find. They're holding it in scripture as early as we can find. I think that it is inspired. I think we should preach from it today. There is no problem with this story, but it probably wasn't written by John. It was probably written by Luke. So there's one of the two major insertions. I'm not really worried about it. Uh, the other insertion is the longer ending of Mark. So Mark gets through its final chapter up to verse 8, and then the oldest and best manuscripts stop. But the newer manuscripts that uh, the King James, for example, follows, and we've probably grown up with, keep going through verse 20. So what happens with this longer ending? Again, the critics are going to say, ah, well, this was tacked on. Huh? That's not real scripture. And if you've preached the sermon from it, you're not even preaching the Bible. And if we, if we can't trust that long ending, we, what else can we not trust about the Bible? Okay. So the deal with the longer ending of Mark, most of the times the critics will also uh, include uh, statements like, well, Mark is a real downer, right? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a downbeat ending. And Christians couldn't handle that, so they came up with a few extra verses to put a happy face on the sad book, and that's why it's there, which is ridiculous to me. Because in the book of Mark, first of all, it's a gospel, right? It's a good news book written by a Christian to other Christians. It is not a downer book. Um, Jesus is talking about his resurrection before the crucifixion event. Um, he is quoting the Psalms on the cross that if you read through, describe his condition and describe a victorious ending. Um, and then they record the empty tomb. Jesus is, is risen. I don't know how this is a downbeat ending. It is an abrupt ending, but Mark is an abrupt book if you just look through the book itself. Um, the content of the longer ending can be found in uh, the other three Gospels, except for snake handling. Snake handling is unique to the longer ending of Mark, um, but it's not out of keeping with the rest of Scripture if you understand it like a rational person. Now, if, if you decide that you need to go pick up a snake, then we'll have a separate side conversation. Um, but there's just nothing about the longer ending of Mark. Uh, the, the difficulty is that it appears, um, th they'll say, well, there was, a, there was another longer ending that was edited out and removed. But we can't find it. And we have, Mark is the earliest book we have. So, so we're within 100 years of writing. We're within, uh, the, the old folks can still remember when it was written and we can't find one example of an alternate version. It either has the ending or it doesn't. It's been suggested that Mark probably was not originally intended to have the, the remainder. It was probably a lead-in uh, history book for the church. And when you got to that point, you've told the story. He's risen. And now you go into the creedal statements. You go into the other teaching of the church. A little bit later on, we, we kind of see that it's abrupt, and there's an, a copy editor that, that fleshes out the rest. But again, it matches from the other three, which is probably where the content was drawn from. I don't see any reason why that's not Scripture. I don't see any reason why you can't preach it. The church fathers think this is Scripture. I mean, there's been no time in the church that this has been a concern until right now. You know, this minute suddenly is a concern. Um, and I just want to talk briefly, because I know I'm right at the, the last fumes about... Um, inspiration, because this is kind of the source of this thing. Um, when we talk about Jesus, the critics don't come out and say, well, look at this, right? Jesus, 
uh, he had to eat and drink. He got tired, right? He had calluses on his hands from, from swinging a hammer. It says that he, he sweat, he bled, he died. Jesus is a man. You know, and when, when the critic says he's a man, we're supposed to say he's not God? And you know, the, the critic is saying your faith is a lie. Look, he's a man. And we're Christians. We say, of course he's a man. And he's God. His humanity does not hurt his divinity. His divinity does not hurt his humanity. I expect him to be a man and to be God. But we'll do this thing with Scripture where they'll show the, the human fingerprints of the human writers that God used. And they'll say, look, there are hallmarks of humanity. Do you know men wrote this? Paul wrote this? Matthew wrote this? Real men wrote this? And we're supposed to be shocked it didn't descend from the heavens in, in its whole form, probably in the King James Version. I don't know. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I guess my faith is a lie. Men have been involved in this. The, the written word of God and the living word of God, Jesus, are very similar in this respect. The humanity of Scripture does not damage the divinity of Scripture. The divinity of Scripture does not remove the humanity of Scripture. This is not a, a dictation. This is not the Bible fell from the sky. God worked in and through humans to speak to humans. It's the greatest honor that we could possibly have. Um, but the Bible has this humanity and divinity aspect like Jesus does. Don't let the Bible's humanity scare you any more than Jesus' humanity should scare you. It's just the nature of, of what this thing is. And with that, uh, I'm at time, and I'm also done with my slides, so hooray. We have one minute. I've got one minute. Q&A, one minute. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, so I'm not an expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but what I do know is prior to that, the oldest uh, Old Testament was to 1008 A.D. Uh, our oldest copy of the Old Testament is far newer than our oldest copy of the New Testament. There are fragments out to 250 B.C., um, but that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so the argument is, well, my goodness, if it's a hundred a thousand years AD, then how can we trust it? And you find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you get to time travel a millennia, and it's virtually unchanged. And so suddenly you can't make the argument, if a thousand years didn't move the text, then why do we think anything else did? And it's that Jewish scribal tradition. I'm, I'm envious Christians didn't have the same. The good thing we did is we spammed it out there. <laughs> and one of the points I couldn't get to was that in that spamming of the text, it made it uncontrollable. If you look at Islam, the Quran does not have, well, okay, it does have variations, uh, but it doesn't have the same level of diversity of the text because an early caliph gathered them up and destroyed text and killed people to standardize the text. Um, with the New Testament going absolutely everywhere, you can't do it. it. It is in the wild. You can't control it, and that's the way it's meant to be. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that, but the Jewish tradition of accuracy is remarkable. Thank you.